Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the February 24th edition of Beer in Front. I'm your host, Dave Zalatoris, and I have a great show for you this week. I sat down and talked to Jeremy Bannis, author of the new book, Cellus Beer, and he was kind enough to sit down with me while undergoing all the snow, ice, and power issues they were having last week down in Texas. Now, I was hoping to have a Cellus White to talk about as well. However, the United States Postal Service didn't cooperate, so I'll be having a Herald's 83 Honey Ale as my beer in front. I didn't want to sit on the interview with Mr. Bannis since he graciously took time out to talk to me, so I'll have to sell us white beer whenever the mail finally arrives. Also, the show has really been catching on the past couple of weeks, so welcome to all the new listeners, and thank you to all the longtime ones as well. This is going to be another long episode, so let's open up a beer and get going. Well, if you've listened to the show the last couple of weeks, you've heard me talk about a new book that I've been reading called Celis Beer, Born in Belgium, Brewed in Texas. And I'm very happy to have on the show the author of the book, Jeremy Bannis. Jeremy, welcome. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. How's uh, you all cleared out with all the snow out there? You must, I think you're the only person in Texas with the Wu-Tang Clan logo in your, uh, in your backyard. And, uh, and the front yard. Okay, <laughs> uh, cool. Maybe that's what's keeping the power on at the moment. I don't know. Very good. Wu-Tang is forever. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully my power. <laughs> yes. Well, I do thank you for coming on. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what was it about this story that was so fascinating to you to write this book? Right. So I've been a freelance writer for about 13, 14 years, give or take. I've been freelancing with uh, publications within San Antonio, Texas, and around the country. So done stuff for San Antonio Magazine and a couple of others locally, um, a couple of outs- uh, within the state, Brewers Association, Beer Advocate before the uh, magazine uh, folded, um, and a couple of others, uh, Craft Beer and Brewing and, and some others. But this is my uh, third book. The first two are also beer history books as well. Um, one told the history of brewing in the San Antonio area and uh, going back to the 1840s. And then the last was the Pearl Brewery, which was a giant regional brewery in, in, uh, from San Antonio that ended up distributing in the 13 states up to one point. This story was a little different. This is beer history as well. But 
what got me on on this was had known who Pierre Sellis was and known who Sellis Brewery was in Austin from having moved to Austin in the early 90s when Sellis had just opened and knew the importance of Pierre Sellis and Whitbeer. But it didn't really get me into maybe writing a book about all of this until uh, the Brewers Association wanted me to do a profile on Sellis Brewery reopening uh, back in 2017, so just shy of four years ago. I had known Christine Sellis, Pierre's daughter, uh, for a few years. You know, not super close, but knew her, had a professional relationship and had talked to her in regards to the uh, profile for uh, the Brewers Association. And what I had found is, you know, that wasn't supposed to be an overly large article, but I was trying to find information for it. And so I, you know, talked to them and interviewed them about the new brewery, how it came about, how it was designed versus the, the 90s brewery and then the brewery and uh, breweries in Belgium. And what I was finding is even just getting background information or verifying background information after talking to them was I was finding the same couple of paragraphs over and over. Every so often I might find an article written by somebody who had a little bit newer or not so much newer, but different information about Pierre and the story and him bringing Whitbeer back and, and all of that. But that was few and far between. And I'm still, again, finding the same couple of paragraphs. Milkman from Belgium brings back Whitbeer from his native Who Garden. They brewed Whitbeer since the 1300s, spreads all over the world. He comes to Santa, to Texas, spreads all over uh, Texas or, and all over the United States. And next thing you know, everybody and their grandmother is brewing a Whitbeer. And that's all because of this one guy, regional beer style, this one guy. And I'm sitting here going, you know, sure, these couple of paragraphs kind of very shortly summarize the story. But a story this important, somebody who didn't invent Whitbeer, but kind of reinvented it for every, for everybody who brews it now, there was just so much information that had to be out there that wasn't in those couple of paragraphs. I mean, we've got whole books on people who did far less. Yes. And decided that, you know, the, the whole story needed and deserved to be told because he was that important. Um, it, after I had uh, been, uh, the proposal had been accepted by the publisher to, to do this book, and I, starting my initial research, hadn't even gone to Belgium yet, and um, I had actually talked to um, Garrett Oliver, who's Brooklyn White, has won a couple of awards and is fairly well known, and I talked to Rob Todd from Allagash, who's Allagash White, is internationally known, even though it's uh, up in Maine, and he was directly influenced by Pierre specifically, in fact, but in, in talking to Garrett, the one thing, a couple of things he had said to me is when I mentioned a minute ago, Pierre didn't invent Whitbeer, but he reinvented it for everybody who brews it now. I got to admit, I kind of stole that from Garrett. He okay. said that. Um, but he's not wrong. He's absolutely correct. And, you know, he, he went on to say that it, it very rarely with one particular type of thing, can you point to a specific person as the originator of something? So again, you know, he goes, well, he didn't invent it, but he reinvented it. And the only reason everybody around the planet has a Whitbeer on tap is because of him, not because of all the brewers of Whitbeer before him going back hundreds of years, him specifically. So for modern Whitbeer, he's the guy. And that's, that's kind of rare to be able to do that. You know, Garrett had said that if Pierre Sellis is not in your pantheon of beer gods, there's something wrong with you. And yes, he's, Garrett's been around for a while. Some of the, some of the newer breweries, some of the newer brewers, may know of Pierre, may respect that, but may not get it quite in the same way. And that was the other reason for this book. It was not just to fill in the gaps and give all of the information, kind of what I refer to as the complete story, not, not the little uh, couple of paragraphs, 
but was also to illustrate the importance of this one guy on beer even now, let alone in the last 50 years. I mean, without doubt, if there was a Mount Rushmore of craft beer, Pierre would definitely be on that. And I know I have some people that really aren't into beer, but they've had a blue moon, say. If you've had a blue moon, you've had something that Pierre Sellis influenced. You wouldn't be drinking that if it wasn't for this man. Blue Moon, Shock Top, all the mass-produced Belgian-style beers wouldn't exist. If Celis White had, if Pierre hadn't come to the U.S., his Who Garden with beer hadn't already been imported. He hadn't opened up the brewery in Austin and traveled all over the country, and it being distributed in 26 states and spreading the word and everybody going, oh my God, this beer is so fantastic. Your Blue Moon wouldn't exist. Shock Top yes. wouldn't exist. And now with those two, maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Yeah. Um, that just goes to the whole popularity. The guy that uh, you know started Blue Moon before uh, Coors took over knew the importance of that. He knew he needed he needed to do that. Shock tops there for a reason as well. Yes. And reading this, and I've done research before because his stories always fascinated me. That was one of the early craft beers that I had in the mid '90s, and growing up drinking you know old style here in Chicago or. Miller Lite, drinking Celis White was like, whoa, this is incredible. So it's always fascinating me. And then we could never get it here. And then doing more research and finding out what happened. And then reading your book, it's such a fascinating tale. Like reading certain parts of it, like the sock, that's, you would never believe that if, you know, you would think it's fiction. Can you tell us a little bit about the sock story? Well, the, the, you know, when I first uh, wrote about that, when I did the, the profile on uh, the current sellers for the Brewers Association is when I first heard that. Uh, in working on the book, I since found out that uh, Christine had told that story to a couple of, uh, you know, it, not surprising, but it told that to a, a few others over time. And I'd seen that in, in a couple of other sources. But the funny thing is, is Pierre is very much a ask for permission or a mm-hmm. uh, it's a, yeah, ask for uh, forgiveness and not permission kind of guy. Yes. And, and he was the, the, the gosh, the, the, one, of the, one of the proverbial sweetest men or sweetest people you're ever going to know. He didn't, could he get upset privately at times or frustrated on things? Sure. But the man didn't have a mean bone in his body. He loved everything. So it makes it funny when you find out that he was a little mischievous as well. But you know, from what I, I uh, know of Belgian brewers over the years, they they like to toy with people and, and, and do do things like this. So Pierre's uh, coming to uh, uh, Austin to get started on the brewery. And obviously, he'd already done some legwork ahead of time and knew he was opening things up and already done financing going and everything else. But as far as bringing over his original yeast strain and his recipes and all of that stuff, he had a little bit of an issue with the yeast strain. It's like, okay, so this is a viable living creature, really, right? Or a whole bunch of them. How is he getting that? How is he getting that over there? Well, he put a few vials and stuffed them in his socks, <laughs> took them on and smuggled them through customs. I don't know what customs was nece- necessarily would have thought of him just bringing in yeast, but it is probably would have fallen under ag- an agricultural product of some sort, um, yeah. even though it's yeast and not. In, you know, at, you know, a, a grain or anything, but they they may or may not have had an issue with it. So, but he smuggles it over and brings it over. And how it was still viable by the time those yeast cells were still viable by the time he brought it over, no idea. 
Christine doesn't know that, that I recall if he uh, kept it cold somehow or whatever. But yeah, he smuggled over the yeast in his socks and they were able to propagate it once over here. That's just amazing. And the other story, if you could elaborate on, the original equipment for his brewery in Belgium was smuggled back and forth during World War One. That's just a, an incredible story reading that. That one I'd never heard before. Well, that was something that, uh, that of course, I found out in, in the course of uh, working on this book. That was something that uh, Christine didn't even know. She doesn't know if Pierre himself knew or not when he got the equipment, but she didn't know about it, even if he did. He certainly didn't talk about it. But the equipment goes back to, I, gosh, I almost have to check the book, but 1914 or 1917, I think it's 1914. And it was, it's all copper, of course. And so it was uh, made uh, for a female brewer in Belgium. So yeah, in 1914, there was a female brewer in Belgium, but that's not necessarily as odd as we might think because beer being essentially the official beverage in, in Belgium, I'm not, you know, it's not surprising in any way with women historically having brewed beer and men kind of hijacking it a couple, mm -hmm. hundred, or a couple hundred years ago, but there were still women brewers in Belgium, even if it was predominantly men. But at any rate, the German troops were coming into Belgium uh, at the beginning of the war. And of course, they're looking for anything copper. Copper was extremely valuable in both wars, but especially in uh, World War I. And so they came uh, to her brewery and the German troops confiscated all of her copper brewing equipment. So she gets them, you know, they, they take it away. Uh, she ends up uh, meeting up with them, getting them uh, a lot of beer and um, talking with them and making them, you know, uh, trying to get on their good side, so to speak. And uh, during one night, she has the equipment smuggled back across the border into Belgium. Well, that's the equipment that Pierre ended up getting um, in 1966 when he opened up the brewery. Um, I, I don't recall who had it before uh, between uh, this female brewer in 1914 and Pierre, but it did change hands a couple of times, but he inherited that equipment. And it was, a, it was an interesting story too, because the guy that designed the current brewery at Cellus in Austin, a gentleman named Bert von Heck, has a brewery in Belgium himself, but he's also it's also a malting company and a brewery. And he designs brewing systems around the world. Uh, so he designed this one in Austin, but he's the one that actually found that information. He was reading some uh, Belgian brewing history books and a lot of the information he was finding reminded him of Pierre's equipment. So he's okay. doing a little digging and a little more digging and finds that, you know, it's the same company on there, the same year. And there was only one brewery in Belgium, this one lady who brought the equipment back. And it was, you know, he had, there was enough details of what they knew of Pierre's equipment and this female brewer in Belgium's equipment that with him dotting I's and crossing T's, he was able to, in this one obscure history book, was able to tell that it was Pierre's equipment. And so that, to me, that just makes the whole Pierre story even sweeter. Yeah, it's, it's you know, I was reading that. And like I said, that was one thing that, you know, I never knew about. And I'm like, let me go back. Wait, this was smuggled back and forth during World War One. That's yeah. just, it just adds to the legend. Yeah, it's fun. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, he went in, once he was here in Austin, he went into business with Miller and, that didn't go well. And then they were sold to Michigan. 
that always seemed like an odd, you know, pairing because you could never find the beer. You know, I don't know how many states that he did or Michigan distributed to, but Pierre had nothing to do with it after it was sold to Michigan, correct? Sort of. Um, okay. So in some ways, it's not as odd as it sounds for mm-hmm. uh, Michigan Brewing uh, having purchased the equipment and the name and the recipes. Mm-hmm. You know, Pierre didn't get involved with uh, Miller until uh, 96, 97. Uh, when he needed more capital to expand because he could, simply couldn't keep up. So he was in a similar but for different reasons situation as with InBev in uh, Belgium. He needed that. And so he looked at several different uh, possibilities for him to get that capital. Didn't want to take out bank loans, um, avoided that, ended up getting sweet talk by uh, Jacob Leinenkugel, who had already been bought out by Philip Morris slash Miller into Miller being a good idea. Clearly it didn't turn out to be a good idea for uh, Stellas, but he gets near the end and we're, you know, we'll skip over uh, the, the, those details for the moment, but um, 2000, basically Miller says, look, um, either, you know, we're at the end of that little deal we made, either you buy us out or you sell us your remaining 20%. So he and his daughter who had the 20%, uh, Christine, sold the rest of that to uh, Philip Morris and Miller they decide to go ahead and at that point in time, just shut it down. And that's when uh, Michigan Brewing comes in. At first, he was going to try to just buy the the name and the recipes. He ended up deciding on buying the equipment, having it all brought up there. So apologies for the long story, not being short, but um, Mm -hmm. it gets up there and he needs assistance. He's got Pierre's recipes. He's got the Cellus name and he's got uh, Pierre's Austin equipment. So this is definitely, you know, this is, it's Belgian equipment, but it's not the original stuff he had in Ugar. And that's actually, okay. cool. so Pierre actually goes up there and talks to Mason about how to brew these and get and kind of consults a little bit for him. He doesn't actually do it with him or any kind of a partnership per se, but Pierre is still very interested in protecting his name and protecting the quality of his beer, especially if somebody else is going to do it. He's got little control. But this is a smaller guy than Miller, not a big giant corporation. This is a small independent brewer. And um, he had a better chance of it working. And that guy did an all right job. Uh, Bobby Mason did a a decent job with it. It was still not quite the quality Pierre did, but it was was there. And again, when I first, uh, when when I moved to San Antonio in 95, you know, Celis was still open. And obviously we were getting Celis down here, but I remember the Michigan Brewing Celis still coming into Texas after he took over. So it was weird to see Celis Grand Crew and Celis White yeah. on the shelves and say brewed in Michigan. Yeah. You know, but, we could never get it here in Chicago, but of all places, I was at a bar once in Scottsdale, Arizona, and saw it on tap. And I'm yeah. like, we can, can't get it in Chicago. We're, you know, two states over, but we can get it in Scottsdale. That is strange. Mm-hmm. I think the reason it was pretty, uh, the Michigan Brewing Cells was available in Texas and in Austin and San Antonio, especially is he's buying something that was in Texas. Austin was really sad to lose their first new brewery since 1878. Okay. You know, two other breweries had opened up and were open by the time it was closed and Michigan took over. That was, Pierre Sellers was what revived beer for the large part in Austin. So I, I think it sort of makes sense. It at least ended up in Texas, which is more than a couple of states away. Yeah. So, 
but yeah, I mean, the, the, the guy did, uh, the guy did all right at, at Michigan. Uh, he got into a heap of financial trouble and ended up having to close everything down. And then he sold the equipment off and he sold the name and sold it to somebody else. And so Christine Sellis is trying to get the name back when she goes to reopen the brewery and it's not even owned by Michigan. It got bought by somebody else. And, you know, it was a big rigmarole to try to uh, get her name back. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that the new brewery opened back up in 2017. My wife and I flew down in 2018 to visit Austin, and that was one place I'm like, we have to go here. So it was cool to be there. You know, how's the new brewery doing down there? It's doing all right. They, they did go through, and I talk about it in the book. They went through a, a debt restructuring uh, about a year and a half ago, and, you know, they opened up when, in, in July of 2017, and they opened up big. You know, and it, it's maybe a little too big for first opening back up. But, you know, it's like with with Pierre, it's like he just kind of go big in the beginning. And they had maybe too many investors. Okay. At the time. Um, and then when you start having too many hands in the cookie jar or too many, too many people stirring the mash, so to speak, in this case, uh, you're going to end up running into some issues. So outside of the restructuring and a new ownership coming in where uh, uh, it's, it's a, a few owners, but one guy has the majority ownership of it. You've got fewer hands getting involved. So theoretically a little bit more stability. Um, they're still, they're still open. Uh, they, you know, once they got all of the, the reorganization uh, taken care of and the new ownership uh, finalized by the court, COVID hit two months later. Yeah. So it was almost like, it, you know, you, you damned if you do, damned if you don't type of thing. You get past one thing and then pandemic had another idea. Uh, but they're, they're doing okay at the moment. Uh, they're still putting out all the Celis beers, including the, uh, the, the classic ones and, and the, a bunch of new ones as they had done under the first ownership since 2017. Uh, but they've, they've got some contract brewing that they do for others. Uh, okay. And kind of helps. All right. Yeah, I think uh, I know the ones that I had that I remember getting in Chicago were, of course, the white and the raspberry, which I loved. And then I believe we had the pale ale down there, and that was a decent beer. So hopefully they're doing well. Now, how's the book doing? It's been out what about two weeks now? Uh, yeah, about a week and a, about a week and a half. Um, not too bad, considering we're in the middle of a pandemic, and I'm trying yeah. to do events in the middle of all of this. And when we did the book launch uh, last Friday at Cellus, um, it was uh, 36 degrees outside in Austin, so. We didn't get, uh, you know, uh, as much of a, uh, as many people showing up as I was hoping or expecting, but again, it was 36 degrees. 36, so, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we, we, we actually ended up uh, doing pretty well that night and uh, I, I had a really decent amount of pre-sales from what I can tell. And then uh, a decent amount of folks, even after it's come out saying, yeah, I just picked up a copy and I don't have numbers from the publisher, but. It seems like it's it's off to a good start. I know a bunch of folks in Belgium, who Garden being part of that, have yeah. bought copies uh, of the book. Um, the Who um, Garden's uh, equivalent of a city council wants a copy of the book for their town archives. Okay. Uh, you know, a few people outside of Belgium uh, have wanted a copy of it. One of the guys that helped me with the uh, history of Whitbeer chapter, uh, Yvonne Debetz. Uh, who's got a brewery in um, Brussels, I'm sending him a copy. Uh, he would have ordered a copy, but that guy gets a free copy. Yeah. So he helped me with uh, an entire uh, appendix chapter. But um, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know what the international sales are. I, I don't think we're still looking at Stephen King numbers yeah. domestically or internationally, mind you. It might be Pierre Sellis, but it's still regional beer history. <laughs> yeah. Um, if that moves around region-wise around the world, but it seems like it's doing pretty well so far. Well, that's good. Now, besides the big name that we won't mention, where can people purchase your book at? So I know um, Barnes & Noble, has it online. I know. Um, so as far as folks outside of Texas, I don't know what bookstores outside of Texas are going to be uh, carrying it. Local bookstores in Austin and San Antonio and some others in Texas will be carrying it in store uh, online uh, outside of the big name that you mentioned that we won't mention. Yeah. Uh, and Barnes and Online, Books a Million and a few others. If you were literally to type in the title of the book, it'll pull up a, a bunch of options for ordering it. Um, so, um, you know, semi-shameless, not-so-shameless plug. Somebody contacts me privately, I can certainly get a copy from as well. Yes, well, I do recommend the book. I finished it uh, a couple days ago. It is a great book. I highly recommend it for the history of beer, the history of Pierre Sellis. Do you have anything next lined up? What's uh, the next project you're thinking about? We are uh, going to let the Sellis book kind of do its thing for a little bit okay. before really... Uh, consider anything else. Um, the first book I did, I co-wrote that one. It was just this book and the one after it that I did myself. But the first book I did uh, came out in uh, December of 2015. Okay. So considering December of 2020 was only two months ago, or not quite two months ago, I basically had three books come out in five years. Okay. So taking a smidge of a break, uh, kind of do the thing with this book this year, and then maybe start by the end of the year thinking about what I want to do next. I do have a, a couple of ideas, but they're not final. There's uh, my family, um, uh, the Tivoli Brewing Company in Denver, Colorado, uh, which reopened about four years ago. Before it reopened, my family was the last owners of it from 1965 to 69. Okay. And had been open since 1859 and they were the last owners of it so when it was reopened inside the original Tivoli brew house in denver the new ownership had to uh, talk to my family or my second cousin to get the rights to the name and the recipes and everything else and so that's a brewery that although a break from 69 to roughly 2015 or 2016 um had a big you know a little bit of a break it's still a, a brewery and name that's been around since 1859 and my family okay. was part so I, I may do, you know, a, a full book on that. The most that was ever done on that brewery was a 50-page, what amounts to a 50-page pamphlet in the 80s, after the, well after the brewery had closed. And again, there's so much more information, I think, that's available on that. So that's indeed a possibility. I've got personal ties to that. So that wouldn't be maybe quite as objective as doing the other yeah. book, but um I wasn't personally involved, but the family was. So to me, that seems an obvious one because that was a big regional brewery as well and was Denver's first and oldest brewery for the longest time, way before Coors even. Yeah. So that's a possibility outside of that. I don't know. Not sure yet. No. Something, will, something will come up. Yes. Well, I do appreciate it, especially with all the weather that you've been having down there the last couple of days. I do appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Once again, the book is called Celis Beer, Born in Belgium, Brewed in Texas. Jeremy, I do appreciate it so much. It's been great talking to you. You, sir. Thank you as well. Okay, take care. All right.
The beer that's in front of me this week is Harold's 83 Honey Ale. This is made by co-creators Sam Ross and Jay Westbrook. They're in partnership with Haymarket Beer. And right on the can it says, when you don't have a seat at the table, create your own. Access to opportunity for all remains limited in the craft beer industry. This project aims to shed light on the lack of representation from marginalized groups within the alcohol and hospitality industries, as well as to encourage those reading to advocate for change. When I heard about this beer last year, I couldn't get my hands on it. I guess it went really fast. So I saw it last weekend when I was at Beer Miscuous. So I did happen to grab a can and let's crack it open now and talk about it. Oh, this is a really good looking beer. Pouring this, it's very, it almost looks more like a Vienna lager. It has a great amber color to this. The aroma's good. The taste, though, the first thing that hits me, I get the honey from this, and it's really good. Also, the honey they use for Harold's 83 Honey Ale comes from a local Chicago place, so it truly is a local beer, but no, that... The taste I get, the first thing that hits me is the honey. I don't get a lot of bitterness from the hops on this. They use Amarillo and Saz hops. They also use Vienna malt and honey malt in this. Harold's 83 has wonderful carbonation. It has a good mouthfeel to it. It's well balanced. I find nothing, there's nothing I could say bad about this. This is a really solid beer. I'm going to have another sip. Yeah, this is just top-notch. If you see this, by all means, grab it. Once again, this is Harold's 83 Honey Ale. This was named after the year that Harold Washington was elected mayor in Chicago. And also, if you're from Chicago, you know Harold's Fried Chicken. But if you see this, I'm sure you could grab it at Haymarket. Like I said, I picked this up at Bermiscuous, so hopefully this is all around Chicago. If you see this, grab it if you're looking for a nice change of pace and also looking to help a good cause. This is Harold's 83 Honey Ale. A couple of the other beers I had this week that are worth talking about. Half Acre released their version of Black is Beautiful. That was excellent. If you see that one, pick that one up. I also had a Saison de Lis from Perennial Artisan Ales. That was another one that was just fantastic. I can't say enough about that one. If you see that one, Saison de Lee, please grab it. You won't be disappointed. And also, I've talked before, I'm a big fan of the black IPAs. Those are starting to come back. And a really good one is from So Hopped. That was called Blind Hem. Excellent beers, all three of those. Pick them up if you see them. I literally could do another show this week on just the Jagoffs. There were so many, but I'm going to try to keep it brief. I know I'm already, let's see here, I'm pushing 32 minutes here, but there were a lot of them this week. So, all right, it's everybody's favorite segment. It's the Jagoffs of the Week. I could do a whole show 
on just Ted Cruz this week, but I'm going to pick out some of the ones that Rafael Ted Cruz did. Now, try to put on your thinking caps and remember, see if you could remember all the way back to December. God, that was a long time ago. That was what? Maybe only two months. All right. Well, Ted called out the mayor of Austin, Texas, Mayor Adler. He called him a hypocrite because he went to Cabo. Hey, Ted, how did that tweet age for you? Did it age well? Jag off. But now he's also blaming the Green New Deal for everything that happened in Texas. And he's blaming everyone else for his own problems. He's even calling out his neighbors for leaking the text that his wife was sending about the trip. So it's the neighbor's fault, Ted. It's the Green New Deal's fault. It's everyone's fault but yours, Ted. No, Ted, you're the jagoff. I also liked how he staged this photo op. If you saw him touching this woman, showing empathy, and helping her load a case of bottled water in her car. But if you look around, it's an empty parking lot. There was no one else there. This was totally staged. Also, just today, no, I'm sorry, this was yesterday, during their Senate hearing, while the Capitol Police officer, they were, he was discussing the worst day on the job. And there's a picture from C-SPAN showing that you're just sitting looking at your phone texting while this officer is telling his story. It's real classy. Ted, you're a jagoff. Megan McCain seems like a real peach. Now, the other day on The View, she says that, quote, the fact that I, Megan McCain, co-host of The View, I don't know when or how I'm going to be able to get the vaccine. Megan, you're the biggest member of the Lucky Sperm Club. You would not have a job or a career if your last name wasn't anything but McCain. You are a jagoff. Chicago police, oh, I'm sorry, Chicago mayor Lori Lightfoot spent $281 million in federal COVID relief money. She spent this on police payroll, and then she was getting all snippy about it, saying it was dumb for anyone to question her. I'm sorry, mayor, that's bull. I almost swore. That's a bunch of malarkey. You know, maybe spend this $281 million on people that need it or on the small business owners that need it, and not for the police payroll. Jag off. Also, President Biden, you've been in office, what, a little over a month now. Where are the stimulus checks? Your free ride is over. Your honeymoon stage is over. This is what was promised to the American people. Where's the 1400 bucks? Stop dawdling around. Give people their money. And people want to complain about the cost of this. It's $1.9 trillion or something like that. But we just wasted $1.7 trillion on the F-35 fighter jet that was a failure. So I think if we could spend that, there's money to go around for the stimulus. And also this week, the first facility for migrant children opened up under Biden. No, 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 no. Put the kids Back with their families, Joe. We don't need new detention facilities for children. Stop it and put the kids back with their parents. It was wrong under the previous administration, and it's wrong for you. Jag off. Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson is just a special kind of stupid. 
Now, of course, he's blaming people, you know, the ones that stormed the Capitol on January 6th. This wasn't Trump supporters, he said. This was people dressed up as Trump supporters who were storming the Capitol. All right, let me let me see. Let me see if I can figure this out. So people are going to dress up as Trump supporters to attack the Capitol to help overturn an election that they already won. Jagoff, Postmaster General DeJoy lied to the Senate and said that he did not order the overtime cuts. There's an actual memo out that says, yes, you did, Louie, you did. You're a liar, you lied to Senate, you're a jagoff, and all I want is my flippin' mail. And in what could be a beer-in-front record, I'm going after my third Democrat this week. Illinois Representative Marcus Evans is proposing banning the video game Grand Theft Auto. He says that this is contributing to a surge in carjackings. Jag off. Let me find, let's, let's find something else to blame. Don't blame video games for what's happening in the city. Jag off. There's an article out on politicalflare.com. Now, this says that many MAGA supporters, they believe that Biden manipulated the weather to cause the storm in Texas last week. So a guy that you think is sleepwalking through life, you call him Sleepy Joe, but now this guy is smart enough to manipulate the weather. I don't get it. If he's Sleepy Joe, how could he be that smart? Jagoffs. Donald Trump Jr., what a prick. Now, he's tweeting that it's hypocrisy for those people that are trying to cancel Ted Cruz, and they've been silent on the Democratic governors and the Democratic governor's competence. Donnie, the governor of Texas, is a Republican. The governor of Texas has been a Republican for 25 years, 30 years now, something like that. You're an idiot, you're a jagoff, and clean yourself up, Donnie. Ah, uh, but the kicker this week, there are two young ladies in Florida, they're 34 and 44 years old. They dressed up like grandmothers so they could get in line for the vaccine. Now, they weren't eligible yet for the vaccine, and this might have worked. I mean, they dressed up and put on glasses to look like little old ladies. You know, I hope these two get something far worse than covid Jagoffs. All right, everyone, I do thank you so much for listening to the February 24th edition of Beer in Front. I want to thank so much Jeremy Bannis, author of the book Cellus Beer, born in Belgium, brewed in Texas. That was a great talk with him. I learned a lot. And you should pick up the book. If you're interested in the history of craft beer, pick this one up wherever books are sold. You won't be disappointed. Once again, it's called Cellus Beer, born in Belgium, brewed in Texas. All right, everyone, thanks so much. And I will talk to you next week on Beer in Front.